When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein! Don't touch that! Hello everyone, welcome back to The Bloody Pit. Today I am very lucky to have uh, a new guest to the show, someone who I've only recently been made aware of because of a new book he has written. His name is Julian David Stone, and I have to say his new book was a shock and a surprise. Mr. Stone, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks for having me on. Oh, glad to do it, glad to do it, especially when it revolves around something Heck, anything that has to do with the Universal Horror Films. I am a longtime fan of these movies, and I have to admit that your novel did a uh, did a shocking thing, at least for me. It made me rethink how I'd always thought about the beginning of the Universal Horror Movies cycle. Your book is called It's Alive. And uh, it is a fictionalized account of the, uh, well, the first few days of, well, right before the production of Frankenstein started at Universal. So it's in that wonderful in-between time when uh, Dracula had been released to great success and before they'd started production on Frankenstein. Now, I typically, I have to admit that we're always looking at this in the past. Neither of us are old enough to have been anywhere near right. this near this period of time in our in our lifetimes. But I have always just skipped right past what your book brings to life, which is the the sheer fact that this period of time, this series of productions, were a difficult thing to get done. And uh, we're always looking backwards. I'm always thinking of them as, you know, fait please. They're done. They, we know them. They're there. We've watched them a thousand times, and we know that they exist. But the struggle, that's what this book is about. And I found it to be utterly fascinating. Oh, good. I, I'm, 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 glad, uh, I'm glad you felt that way. Yeah, you know, that's, that's part of the fun of being a writer is that you can, you know, you can pick and choose and, and look and find interesting stories in history. And it's very true what you were saying. We tend to look at history as fixed and at every everything in, in, in the past at any time could have gone a hundred different ways. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the same thing when I, I started to do, you know, my research into this story about this time, like you said, right after Dracula and just as Frankenstein was gearing up. Uh, with all of the back and forth and how it could have created a very different universal monster uh, universe than the one that we know today. 
what actually um, started you thinking down the road of writing a book about this particular period of time? Well, you know, you sort of, you know, mentioned it uh, earlier when we were chatting just about, you know, I, I grew up a big fan of these films. Uh, I'm part of that generation from the 60s and the 70s that grew up watching them on black and white television and building the Aurora model kits and reading Famous Monsters magazine and all that. Uh, you know, a, a classic sort of monster monster kid or an expression that I only heard a few years ago called Children of the Glow. You know, referring to the glow <laughs> Aurora, Aurora molecules, which I think is just the greatest phrase. Um, and so, you know, I, I had that in in the back of my mind. And then I got a little older and discovered girls and things like that and kind of drifted away from my interest in it. And then in the late 90s, as an adult, I began to get interested again. And I looked at these films and being an adult, I saw so much more in them than obviously I'd seen as a child. And I started to look into the history of it. And when I started to look in the history, the first thing I, I connected to, I thought, boy, this is really interesting. You have this classic character called Frankenstein, but all these different actors have played it, you know, with, you know, Karloff and Lugosi and Cheney and, and uh, you know, all these different people played. And I thought that's kind of interesting. Maybe there's a story there. And as I took a deeper and deeper dive, I finally discovered this little unknown thing about leading up to the the start of Frankenstein that it wasn't initially going to be Boris Karloff but that Bela Lugosi was who the project was originally developed for and then the final thing that made the story completely explode as a writer for me in in a very positive way was when I came across Junior Lemley or Carl Lemley Jr the son of the founder of Universal Studios who was all of 21 years old at the time that these films were made and that's when I was absolutely convinced that i had a story because to think that this entire wonderful universe of of these movies this cycle that is so famous till today all started because of a 21 year old who was running the studio at the time is just something as a writer you know you you you, you dream of something like that <laughs> true true and the thing the thing is i mean he had started uh he had started being able to uh, work on films in the late 20s, still during the silent age, uh, there at Universal, I mean, he was, you know, considered the golden boy and certainly grew up with his father being in the um, the film industry pretty much his entire life. Uh, I don't think that I, I don't think that as a, a 21 year old, he could have had many memories of a time uh, before his father was making films and and doing all the things that those early pioneers in uh, silent film had to do. Uh, I, I love the way you, you do recount some of the things I'll admit I knew, but it was very interesting to have them given voice in uh, different characters, uh, personas to, to kind of lay out some of the specifics of the reason that uh, Universal and all these other filmmakers moved to California in the first place, which was not because sunny California allows you to film year-round. No, 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 no. That was a secondary concern. Maybe even tertiary. Uh, the main reason was to get away from from Edison, who was suing right. everybody in sight. <laughs> right. That, that, that was the weather was a factor, but the other major factor, yes, as you said, was to get away from Edison and from the patent wars and you know. It, uh, uh, Junior Lemley was, like I said, was the son of Carl Lemley, and Carl not only started Universal, but he also really was one of the major people who really fought against Edison, who was controlling 
pretty much all of the production. You had to pay him a fee. And for some reason, which even with all my research, I still don't entirely understand. Edison was dead set against people making feature films, which it seems like, well, why would he care? You know, why do you have to make shorts? But, you know, that was one of the crazy things of having to deal with him. And that's a whole other story about how even before they finally defeated him and largely because of Carl Lemley Sr., um, they had to deal with that. And like you said, the farther they could get from him physically, the less problems they had with him before they finally defeated him. And that's what drew them out to California. Well, the giving giving, like I say, a, a picture inside the this period, I think you picked the perfect spot to discuss this simply because not just is it between the, the the great success of Dracula kind of proving Junior's sage wisdom in pushing to do these kinds of films, but the also the, 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 the anniversary of it being the 25th year of his father being in the film industry altogether. I think that that is a, that is a perfect way. I wanted to, uh, I, I was, I was looking to see if you'd kind of, you kind of fudged some of the uh, the timelines to make that that very interesting pr- uh, perspective work out, but it does seem that that's pretty much accurate. Oh no, it, it is. Now, uh, one thing I will say, it's absolutely accurate because 1906 is when uh, Carl Emley Senior, you know, started in the film business. He bought his first movie theater and then you know followed mm-hmm. the path to production. And the film takes place in 1931, so it is exactly 25 years later. But the one thing I will say, and it's something I talked about in the in the book, one of the fun things about Carl Emley Senior and Universal in particular, they found an anniversary every year for something. <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, I read everything I could get promotional wise you know i particularly for my research i love reading contemporaneous stuff which goes back to your whole thing about history is not fixed you know it's it, it we when we look back it's fixed but not when it's in the moment so when you read i love reading the you know their their trade the trade journals from the time the the movie star magazines and the in-house magazines universal mm-hmm had this wonderful magazine called the Universal Weekly that they started in about 1912, 1913. And it was used every, it was put out every week and it was used to send to exhibitors and it was on the lot just to tell what was going on at the studio. And it was just full of so much information. And if you read that, I swear every single issue has some kind of anniversary that they're pushing. So it, it's amazing because they have the anniversary of when Carl Lemley Sr. started in the film business, then when he started his first actual film production, when he established Universal Studios. I mean, if you just if you just sort of go along every year, they're going to find some other anniversary. But it was nice that the 25th landed right, you know, of, of his start landed right at the time of this of my story. Well, it's great because, I mean, you, it allows you to dramatize so many things about the, the push and pull of trying to get a production like this made. And like I say, it's one of those things where we take it as written, but man, at the time, it certainly was not. I mean, Junior was certainly pushing a lot of people in uncomfortable directions. Uh, we, we often forget decades later just how out of the box he was thinking how different these films were to what they were used to producing i think you bring it out perfectly in uh in the idea of um his father the his father's idea of how to improve almost any film was to stick a dog in it right, um, right. that detail is hilarious in that it it perfectly sums up what he thinks will make you know will make something slightly to 
to coin a term, universal to <laughs> an audience. So, you know, just, just stick a dog in it. Everybody likes dogs, right? If you get a dog in the film, then surely there'll be somebody out there who's just like, oh, that, that, that'll be the thing that turns them around, makes them enjoy the film and make the, makes it memorable for them. Whereas for Junior, it was, it was such a very different thing. And I think that it really is great to see that generational difference between the father and the son and you bring that out very effectively i was i was uh i was torn especially as the the story reached uh reached the point where we have the 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 father uh return from the uh from the east coast and the the two of them begin to uh to not so much butt heads but uh argue back and forth about the the wisdom of what junior wants to do i think it's i think it's wonderful and i and i I, I'm amazed now that I've read your book. I'm kind of amazed that someone hasn't done this sometime already in the past. Dramatize this, because it's obvious what a struggle something like this would have been if you pay attention. Right. No, absolutely. You know, one of my goals in writing it was, you know, that there's a lot of nonfiction out there about the Universal monsters and about early Hollywood. I wanted to fictionalize it so I could dramatize scenes, you know, that, that, you know, that we have ideas about what happened, but we don't know exactly. So, you know, that's why I, I chose historical fiction as opposed to nonfiction. And I agree, you know, I was very surprised that nobody else had done it. And I was very happy, happy to do it. And <laughs> just going to, to what, you know, you were saying about junior, that was one of the things that also made him very unique that the minute he came into power, he, or, you know, became head of production, uh, at the studio, he immediately changed what Universal was making. In the 20s, Universal was primarily known for Westerns and sort of, sort of lower-end fare. They were a major film studio, but they were considered a slight tier down from MGM and RKO and Paramount and Warner Brothers. Um, and so he wanted to change that, and he started making making fewer films, but spending a lot more money. And fortunately for us, one of those things that he you know wanted to do was to make these horror films. I mean, you know, before Frankenstein is Dracula, and Dracula the property had been out there for a number of years. Nobody would touch it, and he saw something in it that everybody else missed. And even after it was a huge hit, and he was proved right, people still thought he was crazy to keep going forward in that vein. And again, fortunately for us, he did, and Frankenstein was next. And after that, then people stopped really questioning it because then the Universal Cycle is launched, and other studios started to make horror films. Uh, you know, up until then, people kind of shied away from it, but once they saw that there was money there, uh, everybody else kind of jumped onto it, but none of them near as successfully or as well as Universal. Very true. I've always thought it was so sad that the. Um that the Limleys lost control of the studios uh, in 36 because of the, yeah. because of the overspending, uh, the kind of almost out of control production of uh, showboat, which, you know, was a massive hit when they finally got it out. But the production delays and the, the length, essentially the length of time it took meant that they just could not front the cash long enough to keep the studio in their own hands. And, and uh, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm, have great love for the universal horror films that came after that period of time. But, uh, to know that, uh, to know that junior, that Carl, Carl Lumley jr. Did not ever make another film past 1936. He did. He wasn't, he didn't have a hand in a production of anything until the end of his life is oh. sad. Oh, it's, it's stunning. What one of the really great, you know, I, I've been kind of obsessed with junior for a number of years 
And there is so little information on him after 1936 when, like you said, the, the Lemleys lost the studio. Uh, Carl Sr. dies in 1939, just a few years later. Jr. lives another 40 years, and it's almost completely in obscurity, and it's been like a detective thing. Every once in a while, you'll see a little mention of him in the paper. But one of the really great things that since the book has c- come out, I've been contacted by so many of his relatives. Junior had no no children. He never married. So it's all sort of cousins and people related or even friends. And just I've been able to hear wonderful stories that it is sad that he didn't make any more films, but he seems to have had a good life. He had regular parties on Sunday and and seemed to have had a pretty robust social life up until I think the last five or ten years then he was very ill because I have spoken to some people who knew him towards the end and and said he he you know he he wasn't well but it, but it was good to hear that he seemed to have lived a good life and I've always felt it was sad that he died just about at the moment that the generation you know that I spoke about the children of the glow were just starting to write books about the universal monsters had he lived another decade i think he would have gotten some of the attention that he deserved because the first books kind of really start in the 80s um with people writing you know the non-fiction uh, uh stories and books about the early days of these films and obviously he was a major source of information but he left us in 1979 interestingly enough he died exactly uh, to the day on the 40th anniversary of his father's death I know. I've always thought that was a shock, and I, I yeah. agree with you. It's I, I lament the fact that he passed away before uh, anyone really got the the chance to just sit down with him and you know turn yeah. on a tape recorder and start asking him questions about that period of time because there's so many things that are just lost now about yeah. his experiences during this period of time. Yeah, and and another thing you know related, I sort of touched on it earlier, but I mentioned the Universal Weekly and how it was just this incredible source of information. Well, completely, uh, or I should say, terribly, the, the Universal Weekly ceased production from 1930 to 1932 because of the Depression. So literally, exactly when both Dracula and Frankenstein were in production, there's no Universal Weekly because if you ever read those every week, it gives information, like I said, about what how what was how these films were being made. So that's another like one of those things where I can't believe of all the periods of time that it didn't you know it wasn't made was exactly where these films were originally put into production. That's that's unfortunate. I was unaware of that. That's terrible. Yeah, I, I, I just had a conversation with somebody literally a month ago, somebody who has an, an enormous archive of stuff, a, 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 a mind-bending amount of stuff, and he didn't know this. He was an older gentleman, and he, he didn't know it, and we ran and found his collection, and sure enough, it like it goes to the middle of 1930, and then it starts again in late 32, and you're just like, oh my God, you know, of all the times, but that that's the way fate works. My goodness. Well, anyway, the... Um the 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 joys of this this novel i have there there are a number of them and one of one of the great things about being able to do a story like this as a as a fictionalized tale is to extrapolate from the things that are known and to kind of get us inside the head even if it's just the fictionalized head of some of the people that we we love from these productions and i love the fact that you got us Really, I, I, it, their voices felt so clear 
both Karloff and Lugosi, the the way they uh, the way they operate, move, and uh, shift back and forth their emotional lives during this period of time as the entire production's up in the air, as it's a question as to which of them will play the you know the the monster in this film, and they're they're both at such different ends of the the success spectrum. It's it's it, these are all things that I had known from reading all of those nonfiction books over the years that have been published, hundreds of them, if not bazillions, I don't know. I know my shelf sags under the weight of them. But the uh, the, the getting inside the head of these characters to, to, to kind of butting up against the idea of how these two thought in parallel about certain things and where, and where the, the differences between them were and what it really meant over the course of their lives was fascinating. I wanted to compliment you on on not just other aspects of it. I will talk about um, the joy of bringing Luella Parsons into almost any discussion of any of this period of time, but just I wanted to compliment you on on the uh, the Lugosi Karloff end of this novel. It's fantastic. Well, well, thank you. That was you know that was the other sort of that was the moment when I realized I had a story when I realized I could tell it from the point of view of the three of them from Junior Lemley. Uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi because obviously the production of Frankenstein forever changes all three of their lives they all go they, they all come in going in one direction and all come out going in another and it, it was so fascinating to me how different the lives of Lugosi and Karloff were at this moment Karloff was a complete unknown and Lugosi was pretty much, you could argue, at the peak of his entire career. You know, after after he ends up not doing Frankenstein, he does other movies throughout the 30s of, of a decent budget, but he's never as big a star as he was after Dracula. And obviously Karloff comes out of Frankenstein, a huge star, and never ceases to be for the rest of his life. Up until the day he died, he was still very famous, worked constantly. Um so that was, you know, that was what was important to me to, to show where they were before and what who they were as people informed the choices that they made about Frankenstein and, and, and where it ultimately sent them afterwards. I have to say, you you've concocted um, what has to, of course, be a fictionalized meeting of the two of them at a particular graveside that I thought was <laughs> uh, that I thought was incredibly touching and also very, very effective in what you were getting across there. Once again, once again, uh, kudos for that particular scene that I won't spoil about this novel. I think it's fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I, I, I won't spoil it either, but I will say that there was, you know, obviously, yes, the, the scene was, was created certainly as far as nobody knows for a fact if it occurred, but they did both have some contact in their lives with the person who, whose grave it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that that is a fact. And I thought that particularly unusually Karloff knew him, uh, which was was an interesting surprise to find that they were uh, they were they were good acquaintances. They were they were more than acquaintances. I wouldn't necessarily friends, but close to it. And that uh, I just that that was another thing when I thought of that. I went, OK, I have to do that. I have to sort of bring it full circle to that moment. Well, I have to say that there's a there's a part of me now that wishes that the. Uh, that someone had uh, concocted a, a novel, a, a novel or a series of short anecdote tales, just a little, little fictionalized accounts of the the bit player roles and the experiences of Karloff during the twenties, which I think would have been absolutely fascinating because 
he uh, someone just pointed out to me a couple of days ago uh, how they they located uh, the detail of uh, Karloff being in this one scene in one this one particular 1927 film and that that uh, you know, people people had known he was in the film and I was just I was thinking oh my goodness and he 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 took a he got a still of it uh, that he that he that he uh, demonstrated demonstrated this find for and it was just one of those things where i i think that his don't get me wrong frankenstein is exactly the place he needed to end up because he 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 struggled for so long and i think that period of time during the 20s is just an amazing an amazing tale of um this this young man well, not so young man at that point. He was in his thirties by then, getting to the point where he fi- he finally got there. I mean, it's it's no secret. He talked about it later in his life that he was on the verge of kind of giving the whole acting gig up. He feel he felt he if he, he if he was going to make it, surely by now he would have. He'd been doing this kind of bit player and supporting player role game for for years at this point, and the. The, the way in which you fold all of those experiences into your characterization of him in the novel is fantastic. Oh, well, well, thank you. And, and, and that's very true that Frankenstein, I believe was the 87th film that he was in 87 mm. films. Um, and, uh, the thing that I always like to tell people that there's a film that comes out right after he finishes shooting Frankenstein. Um, it's, it was, the film was made before Karloff, uh, or he he star or he acts in this film before he does Frankenstein and it comes out right afterwards and in the credits his part is called waiter his character <laughs> his character doesn't even have a name it's just waiter so yeah. that tells you where and then literally within a period of months he's in the mummy and when the mummy is it comes out his name is larger than the name of the film on the posters so that shows you how quickly and, you know, it changed for him uh, overnight. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about I've gotten wonderful response from uh, the relatives of Junior Lemley. Well, I got a letter that I will cherish for the rest of my life from Boris Karloff's daughter, Sarah Karloff. And she wrote me this letter saying how much she enjoyed it. And and then, you know, she gave me a quote thank, that I'm very thankful that, you know, I can use for promotion. And and she said, you know, the book was a wonderful and fun um, story of her, of her father's career of how he became an overnight sensation after 20 years in the business. <laughs> so there you go. That's that's Hollywood. Yeah, I I have to say also I just I loved the uh, the vision inside Lagosi's thinking uh, his his rather um, his rather aristocratic way of, of viewing certain things and then that like like I say only only possible in a fictionalized account I would say I don't I don't know where you might have found um, um, any kind of historical data to back up the the kind of uh, internal back and forth that that Bella Lugosi goes through as he's uh, so adamantly against playing the monster and then for just a brief period of time is actually thinking about it uh, to kind of quote unquote be a team player I, I I found that to be a wonderful way to to give a to, you know, since we know the outcome to give us an idea of how the thinking process went possibly through this man's head well you know it it's it, you know like I said it's historical fiction but I tried 
as much to base it on fact and my research. And if you read interviews with him, with other people, he, you know, he, his story changed a lot um, about why he turned it down. And even if he did turn it down, you know, some people say he was fired, you know, so that's kind of how I went with the internal, you know, thing of him going back and forth on it. And, you know, th there is a piece of actual artwork for the film that was created that has him listed as the star of the movie. So that is a fact that he was originally going to be in it. Um, mm -hmm. There's various stories about whether he dropped out of it, whether Whale got rid of him. You know, uh, I sort of chose the path that I thought was the most interesting dramatically and supported by um, uh, all that was out there. Uh, um, and in terms of Lugosi himself, he's so fascinating to me because Here's a guy who at three different periods in his life started as an actor, started at the bottom and very quickly became a star. When he was very young, he became a star in Hungary, his home country. Then he ends up in Germany, starts over again, very quickly becomes a star. Then he comes to America and then, uh, uh, you know, within a period of a number of years, once again becomes a star. And it's, it's really a remarkable story because the last two times it's not even his native language that he's yeah. performing in. So he he's really remarkable. And the last thing I will throw to you that, you know, to, to show you how I was trying to stick the facts, the whole bit about the back and forth, there is a very famous letter that James Whale, the director of Frankenstein, wrote to Colin Clive, who plays Dr. Frankenstein, that was um, waiting for Colin Clive when he came over from England uh, to America to make Frankenstein and it's it's waiting for him in New York when he arrives um, on a boat and uh, it's about two weeks before the beginning of production of Frankenstein and in this letter from James Whale he says and the role of the monster will be played by either Bella Lugosi or Boris Karloff so you know there you have a historical record of two weeks before the production they still don't know what they're who's going to star in this role that is so famous today so that that's you know that's part of what gave me the license uh, to to sort of you know examine all the back and forth that must have led to the final decision being made. I, I was I, I have to admit there's a there's there's been so much attention paid to James Whale over the years that there was a part of me that that thought that you would probably get we, we would probably get inside his head. But honestly, this story is really much more about the 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 three characters of uh, Junior Limley and Karloff and Lagosi. And I, I, but I, but I did love the the very interesting way uh, we get to see both James Whale and Robert Florey, uh, in in the way this story is told. Uh, in that we, once again, as fans of these movies and and that period of time in filmmaking, the path uh, that both Florey and um, uh, Whale went on. Uh, is well trod at least in our in our fa you know f film fan minds. We know where they end up. We know where they go. We know what happens. But right. the, the at this point in time where they're you know almost on equal footing. I mean, Whale was clearly doing better in general because of the success of his first movie. But the um, the vision of how. Uh, it's not that Junior plays them off against each other. It's that he knows that he has two talented people and he's still trying to juggle just getting one of them made which he sees as, as as a a massive possibility for you know for for not just making a lot of money but also for 
putting something on screen that is in, that will be indelible, that will kind of leave a huge mark on the industry as well. And I just think that it's uh, really re- really fascinating to 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 get a glimpse of the possible ways in which he was thinking about this and how he was playing all of these. And I have to say that uh, although I was aware <laughs> of his uh, of of Junior's long-term relationship with uh, Sidney Fox, uh, the way in which you, um, shall we say, finesse the <laughs> uh, the casting of Miss Fox in Murders in the Rue Morgue, I thought was very nice. Yeah, you know, that was another thing sort of to bring it full circle because it was interesting, you know, how, you know, Lugosi sort of ends up with this film as a consolation prize and Sydney's in it and Flores involved, you know, it, it, it just was the perfect way to sort of, to wrap everything up. It's, you know, it's an enjoyable film and I think Bella's very good in it, but it's sadly not up to the level of the sort of classic universal monster films. It, 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 uh, the, the ape leaves a lot to be desired, you know? Well, it's the switching back and forth between the perfectly acceptable man in a gorilla suit and the close-ups of an actual ape that yeah. just do not match. And, yeah, you know, it's, it's it's not up to the equality. But, you know, I love it. And, and Bella's terrific. I mean, he's got oh, some he's great monologues. And uh, it's, it's it's close to being up to the quality of the others. But, but you know, it's it's not quite there. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy that, you know, in terms of the, the major part of the cycle, uh, you know, that, that Bella gets his great moment in Son of Frankenstein and, and, and the other films. Uh, definitely, I, I think that if you're looking for the the great per, the great grace note performance moments from Lugosi, you're looking at uh, the first thirty minutes of Dracula. You're looking at um, several different sequences in the Black Cat and the Raven, and um, Son of Frankenstein with with him with his characterization of Igor. Uh, yeah. With, by, by the way, the production of that film would make for a hell of a novel. But... <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, not that I'm pointing you in that direction. I'm just saying. But <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> I, I've had a few people ask me about writing a sequel, which uh, uh, it certainly would be intriguing. I, I have a lot. I would love to. I'd love to follow these characters, you know, forward. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> it's it's a lot of work putting these things together, but I would certainly love to do it. Oh well, the the war around. Uh, especially the reshoots of the Black Cat would be would be fertile ground, I would think. Oh, there's so much, yeah. What uh, just you know, as a one film fan to another, uh, what what was the first, if you remember, what was the first of the Universal horror films that ever uh, ever caught your attention? God, that that's a really great question. Uh, I, I the, the one that I I first fell in love with, you know, back as a kid was Creature from the Black Lagoon. That was my first, you know, uh, the reason I love that one, because, as, again, as a kid, you know, I'm not, a, you know, when, when when two people are talking and there's no monster, I'm not paying a lot of attention, you know, <laughs> and it's just the truth when you're eight years old, you know, as much as, it, yeah. you know, I love it now. I love everything about it. But one of the things I loved about the creature, at least from my perception of the kid, he was in it a lot more than the monsters were in the other films. You know, I, I love everything about Frankenstein and, and love all the early scenes. But when you see it now, he doesn't really come in until almost, you know, sort of halfway through the film um, where the creature was all over that movie from beginning to end. And so that was my first one that I that I really, really loved. Um, and I'm sure I saw them all back then, but like I said, it was when I rediscovered them in the late nineties is when I really just couldn't get enough of it and really saw so much more in it, particularly the, the five that were made while, uh, junior was still running the, the studio. 
Hmm, cool. Uh, well, well, looking back as a you know as as a as a mature monster kid, shall we say? I guess we <laughs> both kind of fit that category. Thank God. Is uh, I mean, what what which ones are your favorites? Which are the ones that now as a as a as an older person, what do you look back on and think of? These are the, these are the ones that 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 strike you the the most, the ones that affect you the most. Sure. One of the things that I do love about the cycle is that even in the lesser ones, there's always like one sequence that's kind of cool. So yeah. that's one of you know that's great. But um, as an adult, my favorite is Bride of Frankenstein, without a doubt, because you know you've got sort of Whale and Karloff sort of at the peak of their powers. Um, so that's that's absolutely my favorite. Um, I'm a big fan of the Invisible Man. That's the one that I like to show to people. Uh, that aren't necessarily fans of these movies in a lot of ways, because to me, that's the one that works the most in terms of just a classic film structure from beginning to end. The other ones are all amazing, but they all have, you know, little bits here and there that are, 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 are a little creaky compared to something like the invisible man, which is just fantastic from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what else. Uh, uh, I love Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Frankly, <laughs> I, I, I love that film has one of my uh, uh, favorite lines of dialogue that, that exchange about uh, when Lon Chaney uh, Jr. is talking to Bud or to, to Costello. And you know, he says, you know, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but you know, every night around midnight, I, I turn into a, a bit of a, of a, of a wolf or what does he say? Uh, I turn into a, a wolf. I've told him to a wolf, yeah, and he says, yeah, you and about 20 million other guys. <laughs> <laughs> just fantastic. Uh, that one's fresh in my memory. I just recently rewatched it. We, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think I can get through a, a, an October slash November every year without at least one viewing of it. It's just so much fun. Well, it, it's such a joy, not just because it's so fun, but also to see the 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 technology of film had improved a lot so just the image quality to yeah. see the monsters you know and and that was another one that you know i and, you know my understanding of the history is is that originally they had wanted karloff in that and so you know what when i was originally trying to do this my early version of wanting to do this this book i was trying to find something where maybe all the the three titans of it you know lugosi karloff and cheney jr where they all worked together on a film and they never did at least i couldn't find it so that was the one that then I thought, oh, well, this is the one where they almost kind of do it because the producer, that was his original vision. But ultimately, like I said, it, it led me to the the start of Frankenstein and Junior Lemley. So, uh, the you know, and in, in general, the cycle is so fun to examine with of the universal films because, you know, you start with the original films, then they do the sequels, then they do the mashups, you know, where they start putting multiple monsters in a movie. Mm-hmm. Then lastly, they do the comedies. And then finally, when the whole cycle feels like it's done, you sort of get a mini cycle with the three creature from the Black Lagoon films where you have the original, the sequel, and then depending on your opinion of Creature Walks Among Us, that might be the comedy. But, you know, that's that's kind of fun how it, it's just this remarkable run of 25, 26 years of these wonderful films. Well, uh, strangely enough, I'm a, I'm a major defender of the, the, the third and last of the Creature from the Black Lagoon films, Creature Walks Among Us. I think there's... 
there's a there's a sadness and a melancholy to the to that film that I think that uh, is it, it's easy. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's 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 not it's not there on first blush, especially if you're a kid watching the movie. But <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, but uh, as 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 an older film watcher, it's one that I think that I've really come to love and enjoy. And yeah, you're right. That 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 last little spate of Universal's in the '50s. I mean, everybody thinks about the the giant bug movies, but I right. also now think about the. Uh, the things like the you know the weird little experiments like curse of the undead or the the thing that wouldn't die and stuff like that where you're, yeah. you're it's 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 don't get me wrong they're definitely of lesser appeal but in the same way in which i absolutely find myself loving the the universal f- horror films out, put out in the 1940s uh, the, the, the stuff in the fifties. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's another rung down. Don't get me wrong, but man, there's still some really interesting stuff going on there. Oh, n- n- no question. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating studio how they've kind of almost in a lot of ways, more so than any other one went through sort of different changes of their identity. Cause now obviously they're one of the, I mean, not the that they were a major studio then, but they really, you know, this is going off on a tangent, but one of the things that really jumped them to the forefront was they were one of the first to embrace television. That mm. was kind of Lou Wasserman's thing in the in the 60s when he came in that. And so, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they were, you know, they obviously made lots of movies, but television was the thing that really, like, they were way ahead of the other studios in, in embracing that. And I think that that's one of the reasons. I mean, it's all those, it's those, the sales of those packages of films to television that yeah. has, ins- you know, has inspired, you know, two to three to four generations, depending on how you want to count it, of yeah. Monster Kids down the road. Oh, th- th- no question. No question. Well, the, um, speaking of the, uh, since I've, since I've got a Universal Horror fan on the line, <laughs> One of the uh, long-term things that we're doing here on this particular podcast is there's a, we've got an ongoing series where uh, co-hosts and I are going through, <laughs> methodically going through, I might add, the uh, Universal Horror Films of the 1940s because uh, they get some attention, but we, we feel, why, why not focus a, a light on these a little bit more than average? And uh, it's easy to forget some of those films in the 40s, and as a matter of fact, some of them are slightly invisible. I mean, the next one we're going to be covering is Flesh and Fantasy, which is definitely a movie that has a budget aspirations and and uh you know shall we say um uh actors who would normally not sully themselves with the horror genre and it's it's kind of fallen to the wayside and forgotten even though it it's it stars <laughs> it stars major major people and you think back to those movies and it's like don't get me wrong i have absolutely tons of affection for maybe too much affection for the uh, cycle of 1940s mummy movies that they made. <laughs> and yet, yeah, I, I, I mean, I really do. I, I, I love oh, them. I, I, love I, them. I enjoy them too. Yeah. Well, I, I, not just uh, examining the insane timeline of those movies is a joy in and of itself <laughs> where, <laughs> where you have to realize that the fourth film in that series has to be taking place in like 1980. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. That's funny. You know, things like the mad ghoul and all these other things where, I used to think that some of those movies felt like they might be trying to to create another monster that they could replicate the the you know the the, the case of sequelitis with where we can get some more get some more traction on these things and and make something else travel on down the road and 
whether it's the mummy, you know, limping on down, limping on down the road and shifting from New England to Louisiana magically, or it's the, <laughs> it's the um, the thing that I think was seen at the time, and honestly, it's it's a valid it's a valid it's a valid criticism. Seeing those monster rally films, House of Dracula, well, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula as a kind of uh, last gasp of attempting to to breathe some life and to get some you know to, to milk these characters for uh, some some money that maybe the the films themselves uh, they, they just they just weren't draw they just didn't have the draw that they had you know 10 to 15 years earlier but I gotta say that it's films like those I think it's the some of those 1940s films that really are the ones that fired the the children's imaginations so much especially when they were they were popping up on television. Oh, no question. I mean, it was, you know, that that was the fun of it, that there was so much, you know, and and when you're a kid, you know, it's so glaring as an adult. But when you're a kid, the the quality just you don't really notice it. You're just sort of like, wow, there's the mummy, you know, Um, there's Frankenstein. So I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, again, like you said, why they're so popular was the sheer amount of films that they made during the cycle. The well, yeah, there's that, and I, like like I say, there's a there's a there's a joy. I I think a, a lot of people, when you're a kid, look at something like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and you think, my God, it's so awesome! What a great idea! It's it's it just feels inevitable. Once again, like we were talking about with, you know, looking backwards at these films, you know, their, and their productions, it feels inevitable that this film was going to exist, but it it just was not. This is not. That's the genesis of this whole, you know, monster rally thing that Universal started. And it's one of those rare occurrences where if all those stories are true, it was just an idea tossed out by a writer who then got pushed into making, you know, writing the screenplay and they made the film that has now led to, you know, decades and decades of monster mashups over the years that really, I think, pushed the life of these films even uh, even further, I think it re- it it, it, rev- it revived uh, 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 not not wanting to 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 quote the the title of your novel again, but I think it it brought those things a lot to life in a in a, a fresh and new way. And it's so weird looking back at how, from what we know, it was possibly kind of accidental. You know, it it's always that way with history, and particularly I'm I've been in the film business for 30 some odd years and uh, you know stuff i've been involved in both successful and not successful it's amazing how much things just turn on the weirdest little quirks of somebody running into somebody and you know it's exactly like you said it, it always feels like chaos that goes ultimately in a certain direction but sometimes you have no you know it's crazy how you got there you know true true i i I, just out of curiosity, I know that you've 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 been involved in a number of film productions over the years, uh, and I, I, I'm I'm fascinated. Anybody who can uh, weasel their way into the film industry in any way, uh, I, I, believe me, I have no aspirations myself because I I, I know where my skill sets lie, and it is definitely not in that direction. I am a I am a uh, an appreciator, perhaps semi pro, <laughs> but I'm not a uh, I'm not someone who who can uh, can field those types of skills effectively at all. The uh, the when did you shift? your sights from just being a fan to actually moving into the industry or attempting to? 
Oh, that, that started from the beginning. I mean, that's all I wanted to do. You know, like I said, I mentioned that thing about watching the films as a kid and then sort of losing interest, you know, in my teenage years, or I shouldn't say losing interest, moving on to other things. It's because among other things, I discovered filmmaking and I entered the business in my 20s as a screenwriter and uh, and as a filmmaker. I mean, I made films, wrote screenplays, and I had a nice run, I would say, as the writer uh, for about 15 years until, you know, their, their ageism does exist in Hollywood. And I, I kind of hit my, my late 30s, early 40s, and I could see the writing on the wall. And I sort of transitioned into writing novels and uh, that that's what I've been doing for the the last chunk of years. So I I've been doing I I I had a pretty nice little run uh, with the film business, and I still feel myself occasionally sort of somewhat connected to it. I would certainly love this novel to be turned into a movie. Um, it's something that was definitely on my mind when I wrote it. You know, it's not why I wrote it, but it was it was on my mind, and I think it would make a terrific film. And a lot of people have mentioned that to me. Um, but uh, yeah, that that that's kind of in a very sh- quick nutshell my uh, my experiences uh, uh, in the business. Well, I have to say that it, it's something that occurred to me while reading the novel as well. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take much of a leap to see the connections between uh, a production as extremely good as Gods and Monsters about the about the experiences of James Whale uh, being such a such a massive success and just a, an excellent film. Let's be honest, and this. Could I mean I could see this being produced as uh, a kind of uh, I don't know next next page or chapter in telling those kinds of tales and it's I, I think I think it's an easier sell in a lot of ways. Boy, Hollywood loves telling stories about itself. So yeah. <laughs> so I think that it's possible. Yeah, uh, I it's possible, and I'm certainly hoping. <laughs> I just keep thinking back to something like the bad and the beautiful and going, yeah, the yeah. Hollywood's always loved telling stories about itself. It's, oh, it's no, wonderful. No. Let's, na- let's navel gaze for a while. Maybe we can make some money. Uh, no question. I mean, you know, you, you can look back into the te- in the 19 teens and there's films about the film business, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just the, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just the easy thing to do. And there are some interesting stories. It's a very, uh, heightened, silly world and perfect fodder for movie making. Well, to to say the least, if not less, the <laughs> the um, the joys of these movies. Do you, do you find yourself? How often do you find yourself returning to the classic Universal horror films just as a just for fun? Well, you know, I just went and saw Frankenstein uh, about two weeks ago, right before um, Halloween. I took. I have a seven year old son. Uh, almost eight now and he's obviously never seen the whole thing all the way through so there was a screening of it in town with a score that a new score that had been written with a live orchestra so Mm. that's how recently i just saw you know i just saw frankenstein and and i do like when some of the lesser ones are put on screen i'll i'll make an effort to see i shouldn't use the term lesser i should say the the less famous ones um so that's always fun when like frankenstein you know meets the wolfman or something like that when those are are screened i, I try to take advantage of that the, the other ones i've seen a number of times and after i finished writing the book and i knew i was um 
and the you know sort of the the book the book was making its way towards the release date i made a point of watching the i got about halfway through the cycle from the beginning sort of preparing because i knew i'd be doing interviews and things like that and it was really fun to just have an excuse to sit back and 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 watch them all again from the beginning yeah it's it, it is always fun i find myself dipping into the the ones that I that I'm less you know that, that I've obsessively rewatched fewer times over the years just to just because they're they're less familiar and I love I love the uh, the fact that I my mind can still get tricked into to forgetting some detail and then having it surprise me again. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually uh, the, the the rare opportunity well, out here in the hinterlands of of Middle Tennessee the, the the chances to see some of these films on the big screen are few and far between. But a few years ago, it was it was wonderful to get the opportunity to see a double feature of uh, the Thirty One Dracula and the Spanish language version back to back. That yeah. was a joy. Yeah, yeah. I I went to a screening of that about five years ago out here in L.A. Uh, the Academy had a screening of it because the uh, Paul Coner's the 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 grand <laughs> let me get this right the grandchildren of the 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 lead actress the is it Lupita Tovar is that who's in the yes, Spanish yes. Part? yeah uh, is actually a very successful filmmaker it's the White's brothers if you know them they're the two brothers. Um, who've done a lot of films. So they're actually developing a project about the Spanish Dracula um, mm. because of their, the, the relationship between their mother and father, because the Lupita Tovar married Paul Coner, who was one of the major executives at universal. And, and they met on the, because of, of the Spanish Dracula. So they're sort of telling that story. And there, there's actually, you know, we were talking about like, you know, I love my book turned into a movie. Uh, there was an article out here in the L.A. Times recently talking about uh, about the Spanish Dracula. And apparently there's a Spanish language miniseries being made in Mexico about also about the production of the Spanish Dracula, because apparently I don't know. I mean, I obviously I've seen the Spanish Dracula and I know a little bit about it, but I don't know a lot of the history. But apparently there was a lot of fun, you know, sort of crazy stuff with the production of that, particularly centering around this actor who played Dracula, because apparently he was kind of a vaudevillian and was sort of miscast in a, in a wonderful way, you know, to, to sort of create fun situations when they were filming it. So that's actually being made, which will be interesting to see. It's a Spanish language production uh, that I'm sure will make make it over here in some capacity. My goodness, I was completely unaware of these. Man, these sound like these sound like damn good, interesting things. I can't wait to. Oh, oh now I'm excited. That's great. Yeah. So I don't know where the Paul Coner Lupita Tovar project is. I just it was in this article. If you when, when we're done, if you Google um, L.A. Times Spanish Dracula, I'm sure you'll find the article. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, and if for if any reason you can't find it, just send me an email, and I'll see. I'll, I I know I I know I read it. I may have the source wrong. I'm pretty sure it was L.A. Times, but uh, in case I'm wrong on that, I'm sure it'll pop up in a Google search. My God, well, uh, this is man, that that's that's fantastic news. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm. Uh, what, may we be seeing a, a small renaissance here in interest? You know. Beyond just the nonfiction end of things, some a fictionalized uh, series of uh, productions that actually focus in on more interesting aspects or just uh, aspects that people have a real interest in from that period of uh, film production. That's in film production. That's that's a that's incredible. I'm kind of uh, kind of surprised. I I I. I 
had kind of looked upon your book as uh, uh, an outlier or maybe the the beginning splash inside a, a possibly small pool, but maybe I'm wrong. That's good to know. Well, you know, now there's, you know, the the good of sort of the streaming services is that there's a lot more of the ability to make sort of more obscure material. They don't have to necessarily worry about, you know, it opening in 400 or 4,000 theaters. You know, you do have a lot of very obscure things being made and or I should, you know, or lesser known. and, And that definitely falls into that category. Yeah, luckily the, the the incredible number of streaming services and production houses that that service them is is helping everyone recognize that it's it's possible to make a profit digging deeply into a very small niche instead of trying to be as broad as possible. And I more power to them. Yes, do do it, please, because. I may never know about all these other niches because they have no appeal to me, but my goodness, when you get into mine and start digging down deep, it's a, it's a joy for me. And that's all I really care about. Bring it, bring it on. (laughs) Okay. Well, before I let you go, I I do have to, I do have to ask one, one serious question about, uh, well, related to the universal horror films, especially of the period in which your, uh, your book focuses, um, um, in the eternal war, are you Karloff or Lugosi? <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I love them both. I, I, I find them both just, you know, it's such a joy that such, in a lot of ways, polar opposite characters <laughs> as people are the two titans of this world, you know? Yeah. So I, I honestly, I, I'm not just giving you sort of, oh, a political answer. That's really what I what I, I feel. that That's what made writing it so fun was that it wasn't like, oh, God, now i got to write work on this storyline. Both of them had such fascinating stories, and I loved watching their movies, you know, before and after Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein that I, I my appreciation only increased for both of them, and I really do love them both. Uh, I, I agree with you. I can't. I can't. I can't decide which one I, I prefer. Simply because I love both of them so much. And there's a, there's a, there's a. It, it, the easy answer is it would be Karloff because he got to make so many more films, and he had so many. He had so many tendrils out into various aspects of filmmaking over the years. But every time I see Lugosi on screen, I watch one of those movies. I, I, I will. I will sit here and and trust me. Find ways to champion. Even the, the 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 most ridiculous threadbare poverty row production that he was involved in in the nineteen forties. I, th- I I I I love them, and it's because of Lugosi's star power that that amazing ability he had once the camera was on him. So yeah, I can't really decide between the two of them either. But it's it's one of those uh, you know we we grew up as kids enjoying these things, and there's that. There's that who would win the fight, you know, Superman or Spider-Man battle that goes on within the brains of all of us that, you know, is it Superman or the Hulk? Who would win? Who's better? Karloff or Lugosi? It's 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 childish and funny, but also it's often the start of a of life, lifelong friendships, lifelong conversations that never really end. They're only put on pause. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Mr. Stone, thank you very much for coming on and talking about your book. Uh, It's Alive by Mr. Julian David Stone. I I give it the full recommend, man. It was great. Uh, I I was shocked at how quickly I read this thing. (laughs) It it zipped through. Yeah, I wanted to keep it entertaining and moving because it's... it's, uh... 
you know, it's such a fun world. And I just wanted to convey that that was kind of my, you know, I wanted to examine it. I wanted to give it some depth and, you know, expose and write about things that I don't think most people know. But in the end, you know, it needs to be entertaining and people have to enjoy reading it. And I'm, I'm pleased that uh, that seems to be the response. People have responded very strongly to it. And I'm very happy about that. Um, much good luck to you in the future, especially with uh, getting this particular book possibly in some way on screen. Uh, I would suggest maybe a four to six part uh, streaming service uh, produ- production. That would be great. Hey, do that. That, that works for me. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, well, just once again, thank you. It's always great to talk to another uh, fan of the Universal Horror Films, especially someone who's found a really interesting and and possibly unique way so far to uh to make us re-examine those movies thank you very much for that oh my pleasure thanks for having me on and if anybody listening wants to find out more there's juliandavidstone.com where you can read more about me and my other projects and about the book and the book is available everywhere amazon all the usual places and if you're just curious at your website you can read the first chapter for free Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for mentioning that. Yes. <laughs> Once again, Mr. Stone, thank you very much for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye. And that wraps up this very special episode of The Bloody Pit. Glad you were able to join us. Um, Can't thank Mr. Stone enough for talking to me about his new book. Always exciting to have something fresh, new, and to be honest, interesting and innovative about the Universal Horror Cycle. And uh, his book, It's Alive, is well worth your time. I do think you will enjoy it. Uh, quick read, fun read and uh, makes you look back on that period of time in a in a brand new way. Good stuff, good stuff. So, once again, thank you to Mr. Stone. Thank you to uh, all of you for listening. And if you've got any comments or questions or anything like that, remember the show can be reached at thebloodypit at gmail.com. Be glad to hear from you, and uh, we will talk to you next time.